0: Hey, can I try this without the headset? It just looks goofy. Yeah, let's see how it sounds. Okay. How's that? It sounds like kind of like Darth Vader. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: okay, I'll put the thing back on if it sounds better.
0: I just... I sometimes like, i can read your book and like i look at everything you've done and i think oh my god he cares about what he looks like that's that's adorable <laughs> <laughs> that's the first, first time, time i think
1: in my life anyone's called me adorable
0: it just humanizes you you know so <clears throat> oh that's cool this is mark valley welcome to the live drop i'm talking with will Mackin. Author, Navy veteran, former Joint Terminal Air Controller with Navy Special Operations, he began his career as a pilot, now he's a writer. His recent book, Bring Out the Dog, a collection of stories with Navy Special Operations teams in Afghanistan and stateside has garnered awards and accolades. It's a remarkable portrait of the absurdity and poetry that define life in the most elite clandestine circles of modern warfare. A miraculous debut, according to George Saunders. He's talking to me from his home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to speak with Will is that much reliable intelligence is based around fact-based, observed, first-hand events that lead to logical conclusions. Uh, Will Mackin demonstrates another side to targeting, that of intuition and imagination into the enemy's movements and psyche. Uh, We discuss the role of storytelling, both fiction and non-fiction, in intelligence-based operational planning. Begin transmission now there's one thing that a lot of people from the intelligence community have in common is there's a lot of things that they can't talk about.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) so it makes for a good podcast.
0: Yeah, exactly. So there's, you know, some awkward silences I've had to edit out. So Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I did is, uh, I mean, now it's more like I go out and collect intelligence for some of my listeners and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, bring information back from a variety of different sources and people. So I think I want to, you know, I want to ask you some questions initially about, you know, the role of intelligence collection, the intelligence cycle, I guess, when you were when you, you were in Afghanistan, but then I'd rec- like to get into a little bit more about your writing and, you know, the actual stories and so yeah, forth. Yeah, sure. But um, I do want to start to say one thing. I uh, I read this book. Um, it's called The Mission, the Men and Me a while ago. I mean, this he was uh, Delta planning the force commander, and it was kind of a uh, Corporate view of you know kind of corporate lessons that they can learn from you know planning missions with Delta Force and special operations, yeah. and there was a planning cell and they were trying to figure out how to get this one target to slow down on this mountain highway. They they didn't want to stop, but they just wanted to slow him enough so they could you know probably target him or engage him with weapons or something. Yeah. And uh, nobody could quite figure out how to. They thought, oh, throw a log in front of the road. They're like, no, that's going to spook him out. Or throw you know uh, another car that's pulled over they're like no that's that's gonna throw him and he said one guy came up with this idea like why don't we have a clown standing by the side of the road <laughs> and, yeah and i, and, and I thought I, I want that guy to write yeah. a
1: book <laughs> 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 about the <to> war <laughs> sounds like he was fed up to me he's just
0: you know you yeah. So introducing Will uh, Macken, uh, was that you? Was that you? Was,
1: was that Ashley? me? No, I wish it was. He, no, said it wasn't. Would,
0: he said, you know, as an example of thinking outside the box or something. Yeah. he wouldn't have, Maybe he wouldn't have felt threatened immediately at the time. They would have slowed up enough to be curious. I, I, I don't know. But I thought That's I guess, that, might that I didn't really see until I read your book. So
1: <clears throat> I wish I'd thought of that. That's a very cool idea. Well, we did have, um, we had a commander in Iraq, uh, CLO6, and it was a task force, so combined army and navy, um, and we were working against Iranian influence in, um, in Iraq. And, you know, one of the things was we had to try to get some of the population on our side. We were trying to think of unique things to do. Yeah. And um, one of the things he suggested was poetry readings which, I, you know, I'd never heard of. I mean, I'd heard of poetry before, but never out of his seal's mouth. I mean, this guy was like probably 285, just like 6'5", just, you know, like the the prototype, like blonde hair, you know, just yeah. blue-eyed dude, meat eater, just, you know, you would never think. But he's like, what, a, what about poetry readings? And everybody was quiet. Uh, I think he lost some credibility then, but he was just trying to, you Know, He's come just trying up, with,
0: to throw it out there. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was all we did was hand out soccer balls and MREs, and you know, that that has a sh- uh, shelf
0: life. Um, yeah. but a poetry reading would have been interesting. I mean, you, it you would have had have. a translator, obviously, but you could have gotten some information from it too, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yep. I mean, I get,
1: you know, it's all about finding sources. People, I'm, I wasn't on the intel side, but right, having worked in the same room with them and planned missions and everything, I know how much they covet their sources and you know the inroads to finding them became narrower and narrower the longer we were there mm-hmm.
0: yeah maybe i'll run into that guy at a poetry reading down in yeah. Or something. yeah yeah i'll think of his
1: name of course I, I forgot as soon as it came out of my mouth but i'll remember
0: i mean yeah. i know there's not much you can say about it i mean there's procedures there's methods there's you know where the intelligence comes from there was signal intelligence you had drones you had probably Langley telling you priorities and things. And I think yeah. you mentioned that you worked in a planning group before you went with the teams. No, what did I do? I was, well, I, I started out flying.
1: And, uh, so I was, um, I was a navigator. I was like goose from Top Gun. Right. I did that for about 10 years. And then I joined the seal team. I didn't, I mean, I, there were, there were some stops in between. I was at the Pentagon for a little while. Hmm. Um, I was a speech there, so not really a planner. But, I mean, mission planning is always – it's always part of what I've done,
0: whether I was flying or um, on the team. You, you, Do you describe some of the – kind of the process of, intel, of, of planning? Like maybe what the intelligence cycle is, like what kind of information comes in and how you – I mean, because you, you describe in, in your, your book that, you know, you find the key to one box and that led to the next target and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And it almost seems like, well, that's just a sort of a pop <laughs> – trail I must you must have had a bigger picture of things going on but I maybe you could just describe that that cycle whatever you sure
1: and it was a cycle they called it f3 ea I think it's um it's been in a few of the like the leadership books or the business books that guys have written but I just had to write it down so I could remember it was it's find fix finish exploit and analyze and so that cycle was continuous um On the finish, that would usually be some sort of raid. Sometimes it would be a a strike, uh, uh, you know, either a drone strike or um, something, you know, manned. But finished normally, there was some sort of intelligence to be gathered from it. Even if it was a drone strike, we could go out and, you know, kind of sift through the wreckage and find stuff. Uh, And then that would be exploited, analyzed, and then that would lead to the next find, meaning... Um, the next person that we were trying to to locate. Um, <clears throat> a lot of it had to do just with communication, straight finding a guy's phone, seeing his text messages or seeing the uh, numbers that he would called, that type of thing. And right. uh, one thing would lead to another there. But that, that was basically it. And it was a 24-hour cycle for us. So we tried to go out every night on something, <clears throat> different priorities, yeah. and tried to group them. So if one led to another, we could... We could do maybe two in a night.
0: I want to get back to that a little bit later. How you? I mean, you said, you know, we, I love that. So the, the lost troop, you say we chose some, I mean, we chose some place where the enemy may be hiding. Yeah. And I just picture a few guys sitting around like, what are we going to do tonight? You know, yeah. where, where are we going to go? I suppose it happens sometime, but it I wanted to happen. ask one thing. Like how, how has the technology changed that you're, that we're up against? I mean, obviously it's not like a peer to peer conflict going on over there, but how mm. has the technology changed? change. i mean there was that raid in february of 2017 in yemen you know mm-hmm. where they lost the element of surprise and they lost you yeah. and some civilians how have their how's their capabilities increased as far as you remember you,
1: you mean the enemy's
0: yes. capabilities
1: you know they the, the term when i was in was asymmetric warfare and so the mm-hmm. to use a cliche they were on mopeds and wearing flip-flops you know and we're fighting these guys with the full force of the u.s army u.s navy air force etc our advantage, of course, was technology and uh, the ability to target precisely. The ability for like long loiter, uh, ISR, we called it, uh, which basically reconnaissance. And um, you know that's how we try to offset it because you know they had the home ter- home field advantage. They had uh, they had the ability to recruit pretty well. At least you know I got my last deployment was in 2010, so my information is kind of dated, but mm-hmm. you know, they the way the cycle worked was they would recruit in Pakistan or from all over the world, they would fly, uh, people into Pakistan, train them up <clears throat> during the winter months and, the, and during the fall winter months. And then in the spring, they would come across the border and fight. Um, and we called it a spring offensive. It happened every year. Right. And, and so, you know, just sheer numbers. I mean, I don't, I don't know if they ever outnumbered us, but of course they blended in and, you know, they had, um, uh, we couldn't be everywhere at once, so they would come into a valley and they would, they would exert their influence, however uh, they needed to, whether it was by force or just the fact that people sympathized with them. And then that village would, in effect, belong to them and not no longer uh, to us. And we would be elsewhere doing something, and then we'd have to go back and do you know the same thing, the same village. That happened several times. I deployed four times to Afghanistan, and a couple times, you know, we'd be. I'd be on target and there'd be a seal who those guys would do like 12 to 18 deployments. I mean, they had ridiculous. Wow. Um, but, but they would be talking to each other. Haven't we been here before? Wasn't, wasn't this the one that we raided with so-and-so, you know, there'd be yeah. those kind of conversations where they'd be, you know, remembering having been the same place twice, three times.
0: Cause it may, I mean, you probably, you're, you're a writer as well. I mean, you must've, you know, read, Tim O'Brien or something, I mean, you know, yeah. wait a second, this is, God, this sounds a little bit familiar. You yeah. Know? Oh,
1: definitely. Life. Yeah. I mean, it was spooky sometimes just the, it, it didn't seem like the, the one thing that i kind of took away from that. And like, um, I think the book was called bright, shining lie, a bright shining lie, but it was written by, uh, one of the army generals. Um, just oh, the idea that the, he was the guy that
0: worked for, um, he was an Intel guy, intelligence guy. Yeah. Yes. He had, yeah.
1: I an HBO movie about him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the guy. And anyway, like the, the idea that the goalposts were always moving or that we were redefining what we were doing all the time. And that was, um, it was disheartening just because, you know, how do you measure success? For us, it was like every night going out, either kill or capture. And that's what motivated guys. But right. the, the difficulty came like when we lost guys, like what, you know, at least for me, and I know there were a few other people who thought the same way, it just it kind of became a question of why. And we never right. lost in huge numbers, but it would be one or two guys every deployment. So it was significant. Uh, the team numbers aren't huge. You know, guys know each other real well. So it was, you know, pretty good impact. It's just uh, you try to measure, like, okay, at some point you sit down and try to think, like, all right, is it worth it? what are we doing? How far are we moving towards that end? I never felt there was any traction
0: in that, in that thought cycle. Right. Your risk reward. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, I mean, I wanted to ask you later, you mentioned something about missing the feeling of, of being opposed. Yeah. You know, I mean, did that have something to do with feeling, having a higher purpose that was opposed to something that was going on or was that just basic conflict?
1: I think it was just basic conflict and that it, it just feels like I mean for me at least it 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 kind of crystallized my identity for for kind of it, you know I know that sounds strange but not only mine but the team you know yeah and it feels a little bit having gotten out and having you know that's not there anymore it's very kind of a wishy-washy feeling kind of yeah. wishy-washy feeling like you know, my job right now—I think I mentioned this to you on on email—was is to go out to an oil rig. I'm a contractor. Right. I teach I teach leadership basically. Yeah. I just hang out on the and I hang out and bullshit all day is what I do for the most oh. part. I t- I give them lessons in communication, lessons how to plan, lessons how to execute this and that, um, and try to help them like real time. But for the yeah. most part, I'm just standing around bullshit. And there's absolutely. I mean, when I say wishy-washy, that's just kind of how it is. Like, and I get paid a lot to do it. And right. I'm, so I'm not complaining, but it doesn't, like, the, it does lack purpose. And, and I hear the guys reaching for pur- purpose themselves. They're like, well, you know, we're here because they work 28 days on, 14 days off. And mm-hmm. They've done it for years, you know. And mm-hmm. so compared to a military deployment cycle, like, I'd never had it that bad. And, um, I mean, I was gone a lot. And they're gone yeah more way more and so they kind of search for meaning like yeah they have families that they're missing they're missing birthdays all that good stuff you know but for them it's not like you know we're fighting for freedom or i don't mean to sound jokey when i say that but it's just you know there's no higher purpose other than hey we're making money for bp or we're making money for chevron and yeah and we're seeing some of it but we're not seeing the lion's share of it you know those things obviously sink in and it's very hard to kind of because for me, you know, as a leader in the in, in, the Navy, motivation was a big part of it, right? Like connecting the dots for everybody. Like, this is why. Yeah, these things are fucked up. Yes, that, that, and this, whatever. But we're trying to get to this point, right? And this is why it matters. And I can't do that for them. I can kind of tell them, like, that's what you need to do. But was, I've been there for a year and a couple months and, you know, there, there is no higher purpose. There's like, we're here yeah. to make money. We're here to obviously to put food on the table. Um, so there's that, but, um,
0: you know, you could go work at home Depot and do that as well. Yeah. I mean, but you mentioned some guys, you mentioned in your book, some observing some even soldiers just moving along day to day, doing what they had as if they were absent of any higher purpose. Right. Yeah. And, and that just, becomes uh, yeah. so ingrained.
1: It does. And, you know, and some of that was like the attitude on the team was very like, um, they, they held a, pretty much everybody else in disdain like the, and, and that would, that would be a real thought. Like, I know just having not been there and absorbed it, that, that was a very natural thing to say, to right. look at it, to look at, say, you know, a company of, um, uh, the motor pool or, you know, the guys that worked in the in the cafeteria, you know, they were a frequent target and and they had nothing to do with it. You know, they just, they signed up. They probably wanted to go shoot guns and, you know, do exciting things yeah. too. And they wound up cutting hair in the barbershop, you know, and it's just uh, fate, right? But yeah. these guys who were on the team, same with the Delta Force, they obviously, they worked, they, you know, had that goal, they achieved it. Um, but they couldn't see, like, they, they didn't really see the larger picture. If they did, you know, they just, um, like within, within our little circle, they were very derisive towards anything outside of it. Everybody else was fucked up. Everyone else was lazy. Everyone else like was trying to avoid doing the hard work. We were the only ones who did the hard work. Like that was a very real attitude. Yeah.
0: And, And I mean, it's shitty to say, but that's just how it was. So, but you, you hadn't gone to, gone to uh buds or anything. I mean, you, you were more or less attached to them as a, as I a pilot. Well, yeah. yeah. So I went, I went through
1: screening. I went through a selection. It was nothing like buzz. was nothing like, you know, what the assaulters do, but they, they had to make sure that I was safe, you know, at least clearance wise and also safe enough on target that I wouldn't hurt them. Really, I you yeah. know I wasn't, I wasn't a door kicker. I wasn't raiding houses unless they really you know needed people to run through a building. But you know my job was to stand outside and wait until something happened. If they needed you know to fall back and drop a bomb or run a strafe or whatever, that was what I did.
0: I mean, for a couple of weeks, I I, I wasn't working as an actor. And I, I had done some research and I talked to this one guy who was a special operations. He goes, "Hey." Listen a lot of us go up to um China Lake and we work as uh role players mm-hmm. as like um you know special operations teams and the EOD guys kind of follow us around and yeah. uh do you want to come and just you know pretend
1: let's go ahead Did they shoot paint at uh, you yeah.
0: oh, it was great i mean you know we had, <laughs> we, had unif- I mean, we kind of threw our own uniforms together in some haphazard yeah. way and i mean they most of those guys were like ex um you know, either Green Belay or Special Forces. I don't think there were never any SEALs, but like weird uh-huh. acronyms. I was on a CAST team. I'm like, whatever, I do not know what that is. But, uh, <laughs> I was just, yeah. <laughs> just trying to watch them, uh-huh. you know, and the idea, I didn't have to fool them because they kind of brought me on. Like, as long as you don't, you know, cross your weapon in front of somebody, you know, you're you're fine, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, and I'd been in the Army, so I'd had a little bit of stuff, a little bit of experience. But um, the key was to kind of fool the guys that were, we were training in a way, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, but I re- I remember that there was a, there was an intensity there with these guys and we weren't just, it wasn't like doing a, doing a, they were role playing and acting out a role, but it wasn't like doing theater. <laughs> it, was, oh, yeah. it was a real intensity with these guys, even when they were, yeah. when they were playing and I mean, that must come from the training as well.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I was half joking when I asked if they shot you because they they would recruit us. So to to go back to your other question, I was not a seal, so I was not in that inner circle, the inner inner circle, right? I was a, I was a support guy. So um, fuck stick. Fuck stick. Did they really call you fuck stick? No, no, I made that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was on the outside, and uh, they called me mule because that's my call sign from flying. Um, but. Um, I forget where I was going with it. Okay. Yeah. So support guys, they would recruit us to be actors when they did raids on, they, they had a kind of a mock place on the compound and other places we'd go. So if, if I wasn't involved in say the actual training operation, me and, and some of the other guys would get recruited to, we called it moose up. You know, we'd wear our, our man jammies yeah. Yeah. and carry weapons sometimes or we wouldn't. And then there was uh, they called it the, uh, the red man suit. It's this big padded suit, and that's what they use to train the dogs. And so <laughs> you'd be wearing this giant red foam suit, pretending to be, you know, like a uh, an enemy, like everybody else. And at some point, your job was to start running, and then the dog would come after you, and no shit, like start chewing. Did you chewing do
0: that? Dogs. Were you like,
1: did you wear the red suit? I did it. I did it once, and I would never <laughs> do it again. But the dogs, I mean, they they're well trained. They attack, and then they call them off, and they come off. But uh, it's not a good feeling.
0: Yeah, it wasn't a good feeling. Sometimes, I mean, they we had real Iraqis,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, wearing the the muje suits. You know, I mean, we got to know them. You know, I mean, we'd drive out with them sometimes. You know, they're like real Iraqis that had probably come over. I mean, some of them had been in Iraq during the war and had come back. And you know, in a break in between, uh, you know, exercises, they'd be playing dominoes and we'd be playing, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some other some other game. But it was a it was a strange a strange world you know like they had come out of that and then we're kind of pretending it i guess yeah yeah i'm just saying if you want you know if you're bored with the petroleum job you know they, they like, yeah a lot of guys i think went back to that because they missed that missed at least the simulation of that intensity you know yeah
1: right i could see that but i don't miss it i mean i was just telling somebody the other day that was um and i told my wife this once like the seal team was my midlife crisis Cause I, you know, I, I felt leading up to it, I think I joined in late 30s, and I just wanted to do something more. I didn't want to get out of the Navy, look back, and have any regrets. Um, and the job that I was doing, flying, was very far removed from anything that was actually happening. So, um, I mean, for me, it was the right move. It, it was career suicide, but it was the, the right move. Uh, So how many years years were you in
0: totally? Um, 20 20 years. Wow. 24 years. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one more question about the the targeting stuff, right? I mean, I I think you guys would, uh, okay, I'll just, just read this question. I mean, I read your book a second time. Um, I noticed there was an advantage and a disadvantage to like having it sort of sense, your sense of imagination as a writer. Um, Crossing the river, you described you could feel the enemy out there losing hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that would be kind of an advantage, but then there was this character in character Baz in the story Baker's strong point. Mm-hmm. How, um, you know, you're standing in there in the moon shadow, and you're you're realizing, oh, he's picturing his enemy somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? Like he is imagining his enemy. That's why he didn't see you because he was thinking the enemy was something else. I, I just mm-hmm. wanted to know was that, you know, was that imagination of yours, or that? I mean, we call it empathy. Was it an advantage or did it have a a bias as well? Um, That's a good question. I think most of it was imagination.
1: I think that there wasn't really a way to avoid a trying or imagining that there was, you know, the nights we had time to walk in and think about what was going to happen based on what had happened previous nights. You know, those thoughts would occur to me. Like what, what is that person doing now? Like, what are they, you know, we get updates too because we had a drone flying overhead and they'd be talking about what they're doing. And so, you know, you could really kind of picture what was going on. The The thing in um, the home story thing about Boss and, you know, that was all made up. There, there was a night that uh, a guy got in trouble with a girl that he met. And so we had to launch a rescue operation. So it was similar to that. But I think just, Wait, let me stop you for a second.
0: Yeah, you had to to launch an operation. Yeah, I mean it was. uh, Put that one in there. Wait wait a minute. Did you like show up at a trailer park? Like I
1: don't know. Pretty much, yeah. Like he had gotten. I mean, he he went home with her, and she had had a boyfriend, and so there was there was a bit of a showdown. And the rest of us were at the hotel, and he he called and said, "Hey, I'm I'm stuck in her trailer, and these guys are coming over, (laughs) and I might need help." So we all went to help him. It didn't turn into a fight. It was
0: uh, just some shouting, and, and then we left. But, you know, that, that was the basis for it. I mean, you describe it in another story. I think it's the one with the, char- the character Reed, where mm-hmm. um, you're, a ma- you're on the ground. It's raining. You're help- I think it's a, you're like a JTAC trainee or something, or you want to yeah. certify him. And you're describing how the pilot – it was interesting because your job was to describe to the pilot what he was going to see. Mm-hmm. based on you just sort of looking at a map so right. um, so you're kind of creating this sort of three-dimensional space in your imagination you know to yeah. describe to someone and uh as a writer wow that's fantastic <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> but, uh, um... but it doesn't seem like every job in the military kind of has. i mean i was an engineer we i used to look at okay i'll put a minefield here drop these trees build up mm-hmm. this or build up that did that sense of imagining what the enemy is happening, is it similar in a way as your writing as well? I think it is. I mean,
1: writing kind of forced me to imagine more of it. Um, But I did, I mean, it did cross my mind, like just wondering what their lives were like, because we would see a very intimate part. I mean, we'd break into their house in the middle of the night, you know, they'd be sleeping, there'd be kids, there'd be, um, I mean, so nighttime in Iraq, I remember they would, that's the time they cook bread. So the house would smell like bread. Um, Otherwise it would be too hot during the day. And um, so you see this very short glimpse, very intimate glimpse. And you see like, you know, there's very specific questions that get asked afterwards. And um, you know, the the interrogation that takes place on target um, is just based on what we know there and kind of what we guess. Uh, And so, it's just like showing up and pretending that you know everything about somebody and just kind of surprising the shit out of them. And, um, and their, their reactions were, for the most part, just as you would expect, shocked, um, amazed, kind of, you know, it was shock and awe. I don't know how much awe came out of it. I think they they hated us after a while. But, um, yeah, so having, having just a short little glimpse, and then sometimes I'd walk, I'd walk the person out. Like I would be like with that, that kid, I, like with that kid, with that was kid right? like with the kid, you know, he'd be zip tied and, um, he, there might be some others up, you know, up ahead. I could tell they were trying to communicate or he was wondering about him or whatever. So that type of imagination would happen too. Cause we're not communicating. I'm not talking to him. It's, right. you know, <clears throat> he's got a hood on. He's not gagged or anything. He can speak, but, um, usually they didn't say a word and it was just trying to interpret like, cause I'm, I'm holding them by the arm, like how they felt when they were nervous. Um, you know, when they
0: were calm, why they were calm, that, that type, that type of thing. Just, uh, would you be questioned to, after to describe every operation? I mean, would you have to kind of would, go back and question? I mean, were you like after, after a mission like that, were you, um, was there anybody asking you what had happened or, or I mean, you must've had to fill out some kind of,
1: if, if I ran a strike. Yes, definitely. There was, you know, then I would have to, uh, I mean, it wasn't an investigation, but more or less because they became rare, more and more rare, uh, as time went on, like 2008 to 2010, the ROE was very restrictive. And if we ran a strike, you know, if the, if the ground force commander is, is a SEAL, in charge and he was the one that directed it. So it wasn't me deciding to do it. Right. But, and so it wasn't, they weren't questioning me on that aspect. It was more, uh, you know, if I had advised it or, and then how the geometry normally, like how did that work out? Um, if there were, was anything that went wrong, of course, then, then I'd have to kind of go back and explain it. The pilots would have their story. And then they come back and ask more questions. So, yeah, I mean, if there was no strike, though, then usually not. Um, mm-hmm. If if the wrong people got killed or if they suspected the wrong people got killed, then sometimes we get questioned about that. And as a witness, I might get called in for that a few times. But
0: uh, Just a reminder, I'm talking with uh, Will Mackin. He's the author of Bring Out the Dog, Miraculous Debut, according to George Saunders. Maybe we could jump to that. Yeah, dude, you met George Saunders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's such a good guy. That's great.
1: Yeah, yeah, I met him in uh 1998. I think it was in St. Petersburg, Russia. I was there. I went to a writing seminar there. It was like a two-week-long thing, and he was an instructor. And I just happened to sign up for his class, and you know, got so, along with him real well. And we just stayed in touch.
0: So, you, so I, I thought it was like I got to I got to check this out. It was it St. Petersburg, Florida? St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, it was Russia. a long way to go for a writing workshop. Yeah, yeah. So like well, the story, a there's, big,
1: little- there's a little more behind it. Yeah, so it was 1998. I was selected for this uh, scholarship. It's called the Olmstead Program. And uh, it's a military scholarship. They give you language training. They send you overseas for two years to study uh, political science. And uh, I wound up in France. And I had a friend who was the same class as me, and he lived in St. Petersburg. And so every summer, we would switch apartments. I'd go live at his place up in St. Petersburg, and he'd come live at my place in France.
0: Oh, so you went to St. Petersburg. I've always wanted to go to St. Petersburg. So yeah. yet, maybe describe uh, George Saunders. I mean, he, he apparently talked you into going from nonfiction to fiction at the time. He Well, yeah, he, um, he just said it might be easier
1: because he knew I was having trouble. I was just I – couldn't, I couldn't get – I was blocked. I couldn't get anything to work or feel right or anything. And so wrote him in desperation, like, dude, help. And and he said, hey, have you just considered going back, just using your imagination? Because at the time, you know, back in when I took that class in St. Petersburg, I wrote fiction and he liked it. And it was not the type, nothing like the, you know, the book that I just wrote. It was more imaginative and I, you know, tried to make it Speculative fiction? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I guess so. It, you know it didn't have anything to do with the military. it was more like uh, just like a coming of age kind of thing sure and um it's, I mean he knew that I'd, i I kind of had an ability there, and he just said why don't, why don't you try that why don't you just you know give that a shot you know if it doesn't work, then you can go back to where what you've already got but if yeah. it does work you know you got a way out and uh, and it wound up working um and I think it also just helped me – it coincided with um, kind of my mental relaxation on that too. When I when I left the team, I took a job teaching ROTC, and that was a pretty good off-ramp because yeah. obviously I didn't deploy. It was kind of – everything was the land of make-believe because it's not real. I mean, it's, everything's training. I mean, the students, their struggles are real. Don't get me wrong there, but there's no life or death, right? Yeah. And uh and so that was a good off ramp but then I I spent several years just trying to kind of readjust. And I was telling you about that mentality of how like the teams were so insular and also kind of uh, dismissive of other parts of the military and 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 I had that I had unfortunately absorbed some of that. I had a big chip on my shoulder not just from from the teams but just having deployed so often and really just what, it, it, what had came sunk, of it. it had sunk in <laughs> it had sunk in it was just like you know it was I don't want to say it was a waste of time, but it was trying to come up with something where I can say like I achieved this, you know i can't yes, yeah. and I didn't want to say that in writing a nonfiction um because I knew there were still i knew all the guys that, that i w- was with are, were still doing it most them yeah of and I thought it would be insulting and i and I wanted. I wanted for them to read what I had written and say like, that is the true rep- representation of what happened, which is yeah. impossible. And so anyway, I, I worked through all that. And I got to a point where when George said, Hey, just try, just try to fictionalize a little bit, just,
0: you know, throw some weird stuff in there and, you know, send it to me and let's see how it works. So was it, um, I just, I, mean, I went to, a a short story writing workshop at UCLA, UCLA extension a few years ago. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I'd had my writing (laughs) workshop. And I thought, I mean, you've probably been through some, you know, pretty devastating debriefs, you know, from different operations, but uh, Mm -hmm. how would you compare getting, having your writing workshop to um, maybe some type of after, after action report you had to experience? Um, I probably would the thing the, is look, right. nobody's shooting at us here, right? So what's the big yeah? For me, <laughs> yeah, it was just I, it was drove me nuts. I couldn't.
1: I know it's very it's very hard, especially when somebody's got your number, <laughs> you know, yeah. and they they kind of know your tricks and I guess your weaknesses because your tricks yeah. are are the things that you use to compensate. Um, so I would say like yeah, I haven't been through a whole lot of workshopping. Um, last time was in. 2011, I got to go to Tin House, which was really fantastic. Um,
0: oh, that's great. Yeah, but the, the,
1: uh, I, would take, I think I took that more personally because I, I cared about that. that mean I mean, I associated that with who I was more than the military stuff. Right? Wow. So the military stuff, I could yeah. kind of take a step back like, oh, yes, I did fuck that up. And I could see that, even though it would piss me off maybe in a moment especially if it was delivered in a way that was, you know, very confrontational. But um, I could come around to it. You know, the the writing stuff, if it's, if it feels like a personal attack, then I have a hard time letting go of that.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned that that in the military. I mean, naturally you said you mentioned you're kind of more of a, you know, type B personality Mm -hmm. and that you felt sometimes in the military that you were playing a, a role or a persona. I mean, you know, you weren't George, acting like George Patton who apparently wrote poetry and then he became, oh, wow. then he became yeah. leader of the third army, which I thought was interesting. So that is interesting. But yeah. He created a persona. So you feel like you've, you've you shed that in a way.
1: Yeah. I feel like now, I mean, it took years, probably three years after I got out. Cause even in ROTC, I had to play. I mean, I was the guy in charge of the unit. So I had to, you know, kind of live up to a certain, um, I was setting the example. You know, and I, I felt, I took that seriously. And then, and now I don't have to set an example. So I said a lot of the things that I would not normally do are just yeah. kind of fallen by the wayside. And I just feel more relaxed and happier.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I, I just yeah. got to say, I just want to throw it in. I just think you're a fantastic writer. I mean, I'm just, oh, a, I'm a, I'm a real fan. <laughs> really, oh, thank you very I much. I don't want thanks. this thing to stop without me, without me saying that. Cause I just thought, oh, I was a little nervous to talk to you. Cause I thought, Oh my God. The book is amazing. You know, That's It's really kind of, I remember thing. going through like, it's one of those books where I'm like highlighting stuff, and then it's like, highlighter ran out of ink, and you know, no, oh, it, wow. it, it was a mess. There's just some real beautiful prose in there. Thank you, man. But, um, I I thought it was fantastic, especially your way. I mean, I haven't been in combat like you have. I was in the first Gulf War, and everything's kind of seemed really surreal and out out of out of my own control. And I I remember. Yeah, my imagination just kind of ran wild, you know, thinking, how mm-hmm. can I get out of this? What can I do? Where can I go? What can I? And I noticed <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah. of veterans coming back from the recent wars. I, I volunteer at the Writers Guild, they have like a program for veterans there. Mm-hmm. And some of their writing is amazingly surreal, you know, I mean, yeah. they're sitting one yeah. way and they open up a door and they're somewhere else, you know, they're at their high school yeah. football game or they're, mm-hmm. what else? And I thought that, you know, your book, it was, yeah it just, it just kind of sparked the not only was it imaginative, but it also sp- kind of sparks the imagination gives somebody a, what I thought was a, would be a pretty accurate view of what that experience would like and how, and how it would affect how it would affect your psyche but mm-hmm. that said what 's kind of been the response of you know the seal community, the military community at large i mean it 's not an American sniper in a, in a good way.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> okay. I mean, very kind. I appreciate everything that, all the nice stuff you said about the book. I, I think the uh it, the response has been, I guess, guarded. I don't know. Like, the guys I talked to that I know you well,
0: very well. I think you were very respectful in it, you know?
1: I mean. Well, thanks. I tried to be in, you know, the thing, the question I got the most was, am I Hal? Guys wanted to be Hal. And they want to know if Hal is still alive. Oh my God! Yeah. So, of the guys that I knew that were on the teams that were SEALs, they they either assumed that they were Hal and said things like, "Hey, man, I didn't do this," you know. Um, I, I really because
0: like- you describe Hal as someone that made you want to be a better person, right? Yeah, like that's so. <laughs> no, it's like I no, dude,
1: you're a Digger. <laughs> you're Digger, right? You're the guy who fights in the, over chocolate milk, but. um I, you know, he was kind of a mix of a bunch of different people, really. Right. Um, otherwise, though, I haven't gotten a overwhelming, like, that was cool, or an overwhelming, like, that was, you know, that sucked. Uh, it's just been kind of, they've been trying to pick more apart, like, the, the reality from the the fantasy type stuff. And
0: right. some
1: guys have said, dude, I didn't realize that you were – this fucked in the head.
0: <laughs> I got Dude, what's the, what's up with the
1: blue light?
0: If you would yeah. that, we'd have left you back. Yeah. That
1: is so weird. Yeah, like the Lost Troop is the one that I think they like the best. And that was, that was one of my favorites. And, and it was one of the weird situations. I wrote that in about 72 hours. All wow. the other stories, I mean, minimum took me like eight months. So to knock something out in 72 hours and to feel good about it, I had thought about it the thing that really drove me with that was the Pink Floyd song, like the connection. We would fly out there in helicopters. We it's would announce hilarious. our presence. It's like you're not saying it right. You're not saying it right yeah, with the megaphone. And, you know, there, um, and it wasn't Pink Floyd with the turp, but there was some other song, a popular song that was on. And he was trying to sing. It was like Lady Gaga or something. Right. And guys would just, even though, even if he sounded, if he said the words right and he said it like in the right melody, they would be like, now. Nah. That's not it. You got to <laughs> just to <laughs> it mess with them. Um, so that kind of came from that. But, but yeah, like the boredom and some nights trying to find things to do. I think the guys that read it related to that and they thought, well, that was, that was kind of neat.
0: But most well, that's of because That would have been the to. one that I thought that, that people would sort of react to. I mean, the story, the lost troop, it's about, um, I mean, it's, it's about, a, it's about a team. They really don't know what to, what to uh, what to target So you start taking suggestions and one and one you go to like an old I mean you go to like an old cemetery and you know you have kind of your imagining is like what, what would be happening there years from now. And finally you settle on the interpreters, the interpreter's idea, which is one of his teachers used to hit him on the, the knuckles with a ruler. <laughs> so yeah. That's yeah. Like that, that's like enough, that's enough actionable intelligence for you guys. Watch it, watch an option. Yeah. Yeah. Was, that, was, <laughs> that was a stretch. And I think somebody called me out on that. At least one
1: person on Goodreads called me out on that, but you know what? It's fiction. I thought it was great. I just <laughs> thought it was great. I mean,
0: it's fiction, but
1: maybe it happened, you know? Yeah. We um, did. There were nice. We tried to find stuff to do. That was, that was real.
0: Yeah. What are you writing now?
1: Yeah. I don't really know. There's nothing. In, I mean, I'm working on stuff, but nothing really feels. Nothing has density yet. Kind of enjoying having a book out there. I gave myself to the year mark to actually produce something. So I think I have like two months left to produce something. Not, not a publishable thing, but just something that I feel like I can move in a certain direction. There's some oil rig stuff. I mean, like the, uh, but, but again, it lacks that opposition. I mean, that was such a, almost a gift because that builds the, that's built in conflict right yeah. there. Yeah. And, and so to have to, you know, I really admire writers that can just imagine situations and develop conflict like that, that feels real without actually having to, you know, do 24 years in the
0: to to yeah. figure it out. I don't know, man. They, they- that kid with a baseball bat with nails sticking out of it whacking mailboxes—that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that like a pretty good start for a story. right <laughs> there. Like, Wait a minute, I know this yeah. goes to Afghanistan, but I want to—I want to see what this kid's up to. You know? <laughs> yeah, you played well, mailbox baseball anything. too. You're in mailbox baseball. Yeah, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, there's nothing. There's nothing like hitting a mailbox when it's got letters in it yeah and they come kind of flying out <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> you have no idea what i'm talking about dude. nor, nor does
1: anybody who's listening to
0: this. Yeah, it's a sport they play in the east coast it's still big no. yeah i know so do you miss on uh, new jersey you go back to new jersey at all or you give i do my brother
1: lives there so i go back uh pretty frequently i miss it i miss the beach i, I just i work with a guy who's Actually he grew up right down the street from me. Um he's a lot younger, so I mean we didn't cross paths. But just to hear the accent and you know, he does this thing that all my friends used to do and I think it's a it's a Jerseyism, could be a Phillyism, but you know, instead of saying uh like if he's if he wants something, he's like, Hey, pass me that uh he won't say uh, he'll be like, pass me
0: that fucking uh <laughs> fucking fucking <laughs> <laughs> It's so Jersey it's like, I just want like to hug him it's like he's thinking what he's saying he is, yeah but it's
1: just like that fucking oh what's the talking? fucking <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's awesome
0: <laughs> uh, that's funny yeah I read your essay about uh, being uh, an extra on Breaking Bad which I thought yeah. was just hilarious that man. was fun yeah and uh, but you I mean I think you said you flew a Predator. There's one story where you're talking to a Vietnam pilot and he, you know, he talks about how he, I don't know, flew the Intrepid or something. I like, was some crazy thing that he flew, you know, and you say, yeah, I used to fly queers. Yeah. Right. Or whatever that plane was. Yeah.
1: That and was uh, a real name for the Prowler. Cause it, it's, it's um, The Prowler. Okay. The EA six B the, the squadrons were VAQ um, just to distinguish them from v, VA, which is fixed wing attack. We were fixed wing attack. Uh, Electronic attack, and they just use a Q for electronic attack. Yeah, I think his E was already taken. I'm not sure. The the guys on the flight decks would call them queers. They had nicknames for all the jets that weren't, you know, the politically correct nicknames. Right. Like hornets were lawn darts, uh, tomcats were uh, flying tennis courts. Uh, They had other names for them, but we were the queer, and so that's that's where that came from.
0: But it's, I mean, you, you joined because it's, you said you joined because you saw a Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you ended up, did you want to be like a fighter pilot?
1: Yeah. I wanted to fly the F-14 and I had blinders on the entire time. I was, you know, I got to flight school. I went through flight school. I didn't think about, I mean, I knew there were other planes that could have wound up flying, but my sights were set on it. And uh, when I selected Prowlers, I didn't know, uh, embarrassed to say, but I didn't know what a Prowler was. Right. Um, Sounds cool. Yeah, it yeah. was cool. The four seat minivan of the fleet is what they call it. It's a four seat jet.
0: I wanted to be the quarterback of the New York Giants, but that didn't work out. Yeah, so, <laughs> we, do, we do what we can. You yeah, know? that's right. Yeah. So tell me about um, tell me about mis- Breaking Bad. Have you have you uh, have you had any other work since then? I, had, no, that, that episode no, was they, on right. I worked with Jonathan Banks once. I like him. He's a pretty yeah. Guy. Oh yeah, he was good. He was. Uh, that was Mike, right?
1: Yes. Jonathan Banks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I spent that day with him. Yeah. He was great. No, I haven't done it. I haven't worked on that on anything. <laughs> I got a call for, for some sort of military thing. It was, uh, but I just couldn't do it. I had yeah. a time of conflict.
0: I mean, do you find yourself just kind of not saying something in, in other situations? I mean, especially the guy waving, waving that rubber weapon and talking about, you know, has anybody actually ever been on a, you know, operation yeah. like this? Have you find yourself having to kind of just, keep quiet in other situations? Oh yeah, I do all the time. I don't,
1: I mean, I know I wrote a book about it, but I don't, you know, I don't like wear Navy shirts or I don't have a hat with all my medals on or I don't have any bumper stickers or any of that type of stuff. And, you know, if somebody's talking about their military experience, I don't jump in and say like, it just feels like either one upmanship or not that I'm embarrassed about it. But again, like, I feel like I, I need to move on and yeah, I like, Talking, I like telling stories about it every once in a while. Yeah. But uh, I really feel like I I can't stay there. You know, like I've I've I know guys, older guys like Vietnam guys that have stayed there. Yeah, you probably know them too.
0: And you just kind of lose. It feel. It seems to me like you kind of lose uh, a lot of yourself. Joseph Campbell's the hero's journey. You know where, mm-hmm. where I mean, not that everybody's a hero, but you know, there's the return. And then there is the assimilation back into society, and I kind of I felt that um, you know as a veteran, your job is you know I think to honor your experience, but it's also to become a civilian again. Yeah, in a way, if possible. Yeah,
1: I, I think so, and I mean like it, it's not it's not easy. I thought
0: when I heard probably, about easier, it, probably easier from other some people than others. You know, yeah, I would depending on so. what you experience. Yeah, true. Um,
1: well, ROTC was a nice, uh, like I said, it was a nice off ramp, and it was it was good in a way because really to see young people excited about it again you know and to to some small way like keep them excited about it and also to kind of teach them what i thought was important like you know taking care of your people and that sort of thing like that is more important than being the cool guy flying a jet and whatever like to kind of impart that knowledge and, and now that they're out there to know that that's what they're doing. They still stay in touch with me. And I, I love that. So that's kind of a nice
0: connection that I mean well, that's cool. Um, anyway, thanks for being on the live drop. I really appreciate this.
1: Yeah. And, thanks for uh,
0: that. Yeah. And I'm you know grateful that you're passing on your knowledge to ROTC, to those people on the oil rig in Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm looking forward to your next book. And uh, I've been speaking with Will Mackin, the author of Bring Out the Dog. And... Uh, 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 that's it. I'll cut the rest out. Oh, I'll cut the part yeah. out where I called <laughs> you, <adorable. laughs> you your, call it horrible. You called me horrible. I realized that kind of could. That yeah, was funny. You know, now you keep that I mean, in that there. That could huh? give you a yeah. face. But you know, it's not fair because we're on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks. That was the live drop in the